is a very exciting opportunity to be in Columbia, which is really just across the river or the bridge, depending where, where you're from. Yeah, look, uh, Columbia here, it's in the middle of the state, so no matter where you are, except when you're like me from Hagerstown, or if you're from Garrett County or Southern Maryland, well, I guess I should just take that back because um, sometimes it takes over an hour to get here, but today it took me 15 minutes. There you um, go. From Montgomery County. This is an exciting opportunity to have a, a special, two special guests at really a, uh, an interesting and fascinating function. Today we're at the Meeting House. I think that's the name of the place. And we're in a small little conference room that probably isn't most conducive to sound, but nonetheless, these mics that I um, <laughs> paid you know, 60 bucks for that are supposed to be professional grade should bring us up to date and should close the gap of the, uh, the quality. We're at the Building Equity. It's, a call, it's an Educational Equity and Housing, housing Affordability Conference. It's hosted by Center Maryland. Those guys are good guys. And as I said, we're at the Meeting House here in Columbia, Maryland. Today we're going to be talking education and equity, and the conference today will begin at 12.30. They have a panelist, they have several special guests, and they have the former Secretary of Education who served under President Barack Obama. And as I said, education, affordable housing, two issues that are so relevant to Maryland, to, to us nationally. And I mentioned to these guys offline, I have... My two guests, whom, whom I'm going to introduce in just a moment, I said, I stick to my wheelhouse in Maryland politics, and I don't like to go too far outside of my realm, but even on the national conversation, we hear candidates from Joe Biden to Elizabeth Warren to Senator Sanders uh, to Pete Buttigieg, all introducing these big plans for education, affordable housing. Although it seems to me, gentlemen, that education sometimes gets lost among mm. the big issues even nationally, when to me it's one of the most important and consistently relevant issues that we have to tackle, especially here in state governments. And today I have the opportunity of having two great guys who are going to be part of the panel. Nick Stewart, who is the former vice chair of the Baltimore County School Board. Nick, I don't envy you being on the school board. <laughs> there is no two more passionate issues that bring out parents to school board than redistricting and some sort of curriculum change. That's right. And I see it because we just had back a school night with our son, who's in 10th grade, and we're very happy that he is at Wooten High School, one of Montgomery County's best public schools. And mm. we're lucky because we live in a district where um, there's a wealthy population, but that's not always the case right. for the rest of Maryland in districts that are not funded. Some would say even underfunded. And I have panelist Joe, and you know what? Joe's going to pronounce his last name because I, have un I will undoubtedly bungle it, and it's a beautiful Sicilian name. Joe, what's your last name? Uh, my last name is Frank Avilia. And you know what? I guarantee you somewhere down the line our ancestors have met in Italy. I'm sure they have. So, Nick, I'm going to start with you. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about yourself and what you're doing here today and how your experience has led you to be part of this Center Maryland conference. Oh, interesting. So uh, my uh, background is really in um, opportunity work. So I worked for Martin O'Malley when he was mayor and then when he was governor for a time. And obviously those were some tough times and some tough issues that we were facing, to be sure, um, and transitioned finally into my legal practice. Now, 
uh, focusing on working with entrepreneurs, uh, with companies who are making great investments in others. And now, you know, had this opportunity in the last three and a half years to work uh, and serve as a Baltimore County uh, representative on the Board of Education and then as, as vice chair. Uh, but in tandem with that, I was serving on the Baltimore County Workforce Development Board. And so I got to see the entire pipeline of kind of human development and education. And what we're talking about here today, and, you know, Joe is certainly a huge voice in this, it's about opportunity. It's about trying to create the opportunity for people to have personally fulfilling and family-sustaining jobs. I think that's really the end-all, be-all of what government is charged with. And so we have a real you know, opportunity to tackle that head-on at this conference. Isn't that the cycle, then, if you, have, if you have adequate employment, then you can choose to live in a place where education will, or an environment will be cultivated, where education will be productive, that we can, we can fund and afford, especially in some of our counties. We know that there's a disparity all over the country, really, but especially here in the state of Maryland. Yep. Montgomery County Public Schools versus, let's say, Baltimore City Public Schools. We know that there's a tough, I mean, that's a tough, it's, it's a gap. Right, right. And I want to talk to you, gentlemen, both about closing the gap, the gap today. Joe, what's your background? Tell me what led you to be here today and what you're going to talk a little bit about today when you will be... Hopefully not interrogated on the panel, but uh, <laughs> yeah. they will extrapolate your knowledge base. No, I appreciate you having me, um, and I'll get into the background. I hope we can talk more about kind of that dichotomy you just set up, because um, I, I think it's interesting when you talk about being able to have the choice to then live where educational opportunity is great, and I think the whole point of my work, our work, and being here is that regardless of where you choose to live, that educational opportunity should be there. It shouldn't just be afforded to those who have you know, the ability to move somewhere. Um, so I hope we can get deeper into that conversation. Um, but my background is I was actually a Baltimore City public school teacher for six years. Um, I came from the Midwest, moved out here um, exclusively to teach. Um, loved it. I still love it. Um, became a model teacher in Baltimore City. Um, and so it was something that I'm truly passionate about and really enjoy. Um, but then when the Kerwin Commission came along, it, it was too big of an opportunity to not be a part of. Um, and sometimes, you know, the stars align and everything kind of lined up perfectly um, where I uh, made the difficult decision to leave the classroom and chose to work with Strong Schools Maryland, where I um, now am uh, fortunate enough to be kind of leading the effort when we talk about how to respond to uh, making sure Kerwin's as bold as possible. But then how do we make sure that the General Assembly both adopts the recommendations, which are world class recommendations, uh, but then also funds it because policies are great, but policy without funding doesn't lead to sustained change. Um, and so when we talk about the new funding formula, that's how districts change behavior is through funding formulas. And that's what's going to be so important that we have that conversation. But, but that tension is really important between having these bold ideas and agendas uh, and actually implementing them and getting something done. So, you know, we have seen some half steps along the way in education. But now we're at this inflection point. We have this opportunity to truly advance the ball um, and, and address issues that have been plaguing us for decades and to, put them to, to try to put them behind us and say, we're going to create uh, an equity lens, an equity focus, and we're going to drive a result for all students. Joe, you mentioned the organization you work for, Strong Schools Mar Maryland. Yes, sir. Tell me, that's an, it's a... Non, is it a nonprofit? Yeah, it's a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit okay. um, whose sole mission is to make sure Marylanders are educated and engaged around the Kerwin Commission recommendations and making sure that they're able to have a voice in the process because it's a massive, massive undertaking. This is nation-leading work, but 
state developed commissions aren't that sexy. Um, I don't know too many too many headlines that lead with this state commission did X. Um, and so it's important to make sure that it's not just policymakers having this conversation, but it's those that are directly proximate to the issue that are able to have their voice heard. And so Strong Schools Maryland's entire focus is to make sure voices are elevated in this conversation and that the grassroots is engaged to make sure that uh, this is a conversation that's happening around the state and not just in Annapolis. This won't get done unless the citizenry actually adopts it. Correct. And, it. and as a preamble into our overarching to the meat and potatoes of our discussion today. Some people lose, I, I guess, lose out and win policymakers, lawmakers, and policy wonks like you guys <laughs> when these big ideas are discussed and then when you get into the nitty-gritty. And I'll, I'll say it fairly that sometimes I lose the focus or I'm not able to necessarily comprehend the grain of the details. Mm-hmm. And I'm not nearly as smart as you guys, but I will say that some people aren't able to quickly digest mm-hmm. these big ideas. So um, it seems like today what you can do at this conference is break these ideas down that you can communicate them and they're easily deliverable so people understand that we have this magnanimous proposition in Maryland. One is making sure that we have world-class schools that everybody has an equitable opportunity at a free public education, which is inherent to our country. Right. Right? I mean, it's, it's what it's all about. And that we can use our education system to employ people, to encourage people to stay within their communities. Because I see education really as the center of every community. Yes. It has to be. Yeah. So you mentioned Kerwin. That's on the tops of mm-hmm. every po- political person's mind yes. in the state of Maryland. I was in Ocean City for the annual MAKO conference. Mm-hmm. The, the final day, Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, made a, I would say, a pretty heavy policy speech and he came out and said during my time as governor the remaining time that he has left three years and uh, some odd months he will not fund Kerwin at the what the three billion price I think he said period period right and so let's talk about that let's talk about how we arrived at that figure first okay what the implementations are what the what Kerwin is suggesting. And really, maybe one of you two gentlemen could just give a brief primer on yeah. what Kerwin is and sure. how it began. So, Nick, would you, or I, Yeah, I can do that. So I think you also brought it up. Let me see if I can break down this. This was a 242-page report. And again, I know you have incredibly bright listeners. I'm not sure how many are reading government commission reports on the weekends. Some of them may be, and I applaud you. Um, so let me see if I can break it down in succinct statements here. So Kerwin's recommending five policy initiatives. And if these five are done and they're done in coordination, should lead us within 10 years to be a world-class system. Not best in the United States, but internationally competitive. And How do you quantify world-class? So uh, world-class means that when you graduate from a Maryland high school, you should be on par both academically and through opportunity with any school system in the world, whether that be you know, Massachusetts, which is regularly ranked as best in the U.S., to Singapore, to South Korea, to, you know, name 10 other systems that we studied. So breaking it down into, let, 
as succinct as we can. Number one, investment in early childhood education. From birth to five, it's critical that our students have the opportunities before they get to school. Too many are showing up behind, even by kindergarten. The second is making sure we have enough high quality and diverse teachers and leaders. We have amazing teachers and leaders in the state. We don't have nearly enough of them, and we need to make sure that we have them. Diversity meaning reflecting... Reflecting the student body. Student body, yes. right? I grew up in Western Maryland, mm-hmm. and I want to just be frank and open in this discussion. That's what we can do on podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> I was at a, a school that had a high school that had about 900 students, maybe a little bit more. My senior class had probably 10 to 15 African Americans. We had zero African American teachers. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was really a disservice to. It did. That's not to say that Williamsport High School did not, or Williamsport, the community, or the reaches of Williamsport did not have African Americans or other minorities. I wasn't exposed until into all kinds of different cultures, really, until I got to college. I went to school at Duquesne up in Pittsburgh, and it was an eye-opening experience. Our children today, we are in a minority-majority county. They have learned umpteen different cultures. They have they are engaged in several different languages. I mean, their primary, their secondary language they're learning is Spanish. Mm-hmm. Being around different <clears throat> cultures, religions, it is so important. Well, and and to, not to lose sight of the factors, but I just want to add that you know when we talk about diversity and inclusion in the classroom. This is not just to benefit black or Latino students. This is to benefit all of us. These outcomes, the performance, as well as the, the ability to think critically, to think complexly about issues, um, is, is demonstrably improved if you have a diverse student population. Absolutely. And you mentioned, or I think you're finishing out two other proposals. Yeah, I can, I'll do those uh, quickly. The other is college and career readiness. We just simply don't have the pipelines for students uh, to enter careers immediately. And there's plenty of counties with open jobs that require more than a high school diploma and less than a college degree that we're simply not producing. I think it's 40% of new jobs um, in our sort of new economy will require that. Um, And then obviously more resources to ensure all students can be successful because it takes different resources in different counties to educate students. And then the last and incredibly important is governance and accountability. We need to have that conversation. So the money we do invest is spent in the way that uh, the commission has recommended and also identified as leading to the outcomes that we do want. So it's not just money into the general fund. It's money specifically for programs that are researched and, say, lead to world-class outcomes. Nick, imagine you're talking to a a Kent County resident. Maybe he's a family, husband and wife couple. They're in their late 60s, early 70s, and they say, Nick, Joe, Kerwin sounds great. What you just listed, absolutely. We need that for all public school students. We believe in a equitable, fair uh, education. And when the students graduate, they should be ready to go to college, just be able to read, write, and be able to articulate big educational concepts, or they can go and be ready for a career. However, we're concerned that our property taxes might be raised, and we just can't afford it. Right. The price tag. The price tag is something that is now front and center inside of the news. Yep. And I want to talk about that. What What's the cost? And really, we have to come up with, with solutions as people who appreciate policy, how not only local governments, which was the big topic of MAKO this year, mm-hmm. how we're going to pay for it right. and how we can raise the money. And the General Assembly has come up with some ways. However, we're not there yet with the price tag. Well, we're not, but that's sort of the point, just a level set a little bit. 
when we talk about Kerwin, the charge that the General Assembly gave to the Kerwin Commission um, and its you know various members was to divine a public education system that actually truly served the student, that we weren't doing it now. We knew that what we're doing right now does not work, and we needed not just a little bit of change, but transformative change. And everybody had to give, and everyone had to be part of the conversation to see uh, how we can end up at a place that actually reaches that goal. Now the conversation, I think we're, you know, we have general consensus around some of these objectives. The, the conversation has shifted towards the budget, which, of course, is, is very natural. And so, you know, we, we have this level setting. We, we know it's important. We know we already spend a lot, majority of each local budget's already on education. So we have this opportunity, I think, to sort of lean into the fact that education, as you said earlier, is the center of, uh, for, for many of us, public life. And this is how we, we actually create um, citizens who are contributing to our economy to benefiting all of us. So it's $3.8 billion over the next 10 years. Um, and that's... Um, to put in perspective, we spend about $15 billion between the state and local governments. Um, so Every year. Every year. Let me right. give you the chance to push back against the governor. Well, uh, but okay. Give me one second. All right. So $15 billion uh, every year between the state and local. So this represents technically a 25% increase over 10 years. So that's just to put it in perspective. And in the last 10 years, the general fund in Maryland increased by 40%, just over, you know, uh, naturally speaking. So the fact that we're sort of doing this now, the numbers are huge, but we have to look at history. We have to look at context. 10 years is, in fact, a long time. And to push back on the governor just for a second, th- this concept um, that Kerwin was half-baked. Um, uh, do, you, do you find that offensive? Yes. Yeah. I, okay. So I, I'll say uh, – th- Kerwin was anything but half-baked. There were 58 public meetings. There were hundreds of experts, advocates. And I know that uh, we're trying to twist the talking point to say the half what he was referring to as half-baked was the funding aspect. And if you go back and read the speech or listen to the speech, that's simply not true. He called the well, commission here's half-baked, what, Here's what's concerning about it, which is that it's, it's not informed. I mean, our, our governor is not informed about this issue as it relates to the, the import that this has to be a once-in-a-lifetime uh, kind of change in the way we deliver education. And is it fair to say, though, that the governor making the point on behalf of the taxpayers that even over 10 years, and he's put out the figure, it's 6000 some odd dollars per family. Is that an accurate figure? Do no. you consider that to be accurate? No. So I, I would say that's not an accurate figure, um, and we can have a six-hour conversation about you know, how that number was arrived at. But I think the better question is, it's not about me being offended. It's not about others being offended. And you said Governor Hogan as a representative of taxpayers. We're all taxpayers as well. And there's no one in the state who wants to say, let's just recklessly spend money. But at the same time, Governor Hogan is also the representative of every family and students. And so when I sit in a state where 40% of students are college and career ready by the time they leave high school, or 53% of black students attend underfunded schools compared to 8% of white students, or where 90% of teachers are spending money out of their own pocket to fund their classrooms, that's a crisis, and the solutions are there. So we can have debates about the best way to fund it. There should be no debate about whether this is necessary. And right now, for Governor Hogan to say, I will never do any of this, period, misses the point that the status quo doesn't work, so we need a partner in this. We need him at the table. I need my governor to engage on this issue and in this conversation. Uh, There has been broad support across the aisle on what Kerwin is talking about as far as the policy objectives go. We can have the debate about the cost, about funding formula, and how to do this in a responsible way, but actually reaches the result that's necessary right now. I think that's a 
point that's well taken. And Nick and Joe, I'm I like to to see people of different not necessarily different philosophies, but just different ways to accomplish a, a goal. I I believe that the governor strongly believes in education, and I know that his sometimes language it, it matters. Not sometimes it matters. Yes. Right. Using phrases like half baked, I can understand that, and that can be offensive, especially to teachers and to the commission itself, to its members. However, I do think that if we could all get into a room, right, and as someone in the media could just sit back and watch it <laughs> unfold, it would be, it would be absolutely delightful. Yeah, very interesting room. <laughs> Joe and Nick and uh, the, the commission members, if you guys had the opportunity to sit in a room the size of where the conference would be held today, and mm -hmm. the governor was there, the lieutenant governor, his staff, everybody, and he said... I agree with, fundamentally, all of us should, right? We all want the best world-class world system here in Maryland, but how are we going to pay for it? we got to talk to lawmakers, we have to talk mm -hmm. to policy groups, even the lobbyists. We have to get everybody involved, and we have to get everybody on board to have that conversation to say, how much money can we raise? What are we going to do? How are we going to sell this to Maryland? Are we going to have to raise taxes? How are local governments going to respond? How are the county executives and right. the councils going to respond? So that's I think that's a fair question to say is, all right, let's come up with a plan to raise the money. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what would some of those ideas be? Well, Ryan, I think you, first of all, you, I appreciate what you just said because that's exactly what we're calling for is we need to stop with the we're not doing this with the lines in the sand and everyone needs to be in the room having that conversation. And, and right the hyperbole, now right? Yeah. Because you're, you're not going to advance the ball yeah. of the yeah. conversation. Yeah, because yeah. it, it, it's not about the government. Like, it's, Correct. we, we it's not. hope that he is part of this. It's not about an individual. It's not about, you know, left or right or Republican or Democrat independent. It's about right. making sure our kids have what they need. And so that's the exact room that needs to exist. People need to be willing to have that conversation and to put such stark lines in the sand saying, you know, as I'm governor, this will never happen is a non-starter for conversation. So I'm not even sure how that room exists with that type of rhetoric. And there's, and there's yeah. a fair amount of professionals who are in this space who kind of just saw those numbers and, you know, wondered where they came from, what, how, you know, even at this early stage of the conversation, we can just throw those out there as gospel and say, you know, this is a non-starter. Don't even think about it. And it's, it's also important to say it's not $3.8 tomorrow. It's a ramp up over time. Over right, over 10 right. years. And so having that conversation, we don't need to have $3.8 tomorrow. We need to responsibly uh, increase the funding. And 25% increase over 10 years. And I think that's a really interesting conversation to everyone have. And we have to get out of our corners where we've retreated. And, you know, if you want to set that table up, Ryan, I'm happy to be there. I, I would love to do that. <laughs> and, and Joe and Nick, both of you are part of the education system, right? You are a teacher, Joe, you're on the school board. There's no more important function of a local school board than what you're doing, the work that you're doing. And it's, I think it's, it's breaking down concepts that sometimes are really hard to digest and being able to market and sell it in a way. It's almost, you guys would need to run a public relations campaign. The gov Governor Hogan has been really strong at running public relations campaigns. Right? I've seen that over the last four years of his governorship, yes. is that he's really good at selling ideas that are popular, that make, that Marylanders may agree with. The populist flavor to him as well. Sure. I mean, you can make that argument. I'm not going to make that argument, but I'm saying I think that the governor has done well selling big ideas. Yes, so understood. could you say that with the Kerwin Commission recommendations, is that really what is needed is a, is a PR campaign that is factual, 
that is community to community, and that even having this podcast discussion, which is broadcast to thousands of people, I think this is the beginning. Yeah. Well, I, I agree, and not to be too optimistic, I'd say go to strongschoolsmaryland.org and you can figure out exactly how to help contribute to make that happen because that's exactly the conversation that we want to be having. Um, and, I mean, I hope Governor Hogan adopts Kerwin as his own and helps drive it. And, I mean, heck, let's call it the Hogan funding formula and right. have a day. We know that, that you guys are – and I'll tell you what, this conversation is refreshing because not once have you trashed the governor. You said, look, here's where we disagree, and this is what we want to do because it's about kids. And it's nice to sit down to a policy discussion as important as education mm. and not having people come in with charged rhetoric. And that's where, at the national level, none of that is happening. When the president is tweeting about Baltimore City, that's offensive. Right, and, and I there don't... There's nothing... When he attacked Elijah Cummings, like him, dislike him, agree with him or not, Elijah Cummings is a Marylander, Okay. When that happened, when you attack Baltimore City, you're attacking all of us. Can I? And, yeah, go ahead. I, well, can, I, I just want to say one thing on that wall, and then Nick will hop in. Um, and not like this is not about, again, trashing the governor. I appreciate what you said because it, it's not about a person, it's about the kids at the heart. Um, and one thing I do want to dispel with because I, I don't think it would be fair to walk away without dispelling it because you talked about the president trashing Baltimore City, which I, you know, I own a home in Baltimore City. I am not, um, you know, I was, we were part of the people he's talking about. Um, but also when we, see this rhetoric at a state level about, you know, Baltimore City is just full of mismanaged funds and, you know, Baltimore City is wasteful. And we see that in Facebook comments, we see it in Twitter comments, we see it when people step to microphones. I think that's one of those things that we need to talk about the coded language that's behind that and what people are actually saying when they trash Baltimore racial. City. It's 100% racial. And when we have a strong black female CEO and there's, you know, coded language behind that, it's incredibly offensive and needs to stop and it needs to stop now. But you can take any of the audits from Baltimore City over the last, you know, eight, 10 years. They've made progress in all of them. There is no wide-scale waste, fraud, and abuse. In fact, they're understaffed at North Avenue because how much they're putting back into the schools. And so we need to dispel right. with this myth when you know some of these hit jobs come out on the news that say Baltimore City is wasteful and it's Baltimore well, City's And that's fault. the only solution, right? Is You need to do better with your management of this money. We right. spend a lot of money already. Why aren't you getting better results? And it's because on paper, even under Thornton, these jurisdictions are underfunded. And, and that was you know years ago. So we're looking forward here. I mean, and Maryland Center for Economic Policy did some great analysis, but in 2000, by 2008, when the funding was starting to actually ramp up and get fully implemented, by 2008, 23 of 24 jurisdictions were considered, quote unquote, fully funded. We're down to six districts um, since the Great Recession, and that's just unconscionable. That's profound. You All right. know what is so simplistic to me when people I read, especially on Facebook comments, and if you ever really just want to pull your hair out, just mm. like any freaking <laughs> Facebook thread. Is when people say, and I hate this one, this is, you guys are going to look, <laughs> if only a Republican would be elected to Baltimore City, the Democrats are sh are surely responsible for these years of mismanagement. By the nature alone of their political party is the reason for all that plagues Baltimore City. And I think that that is one of the dumbest arguments someone could make, just by the nature of being a registered RRD. It, it's, it has nothing to do with partisanship. It has... Baltimore City is, is afflicted with issues that we are all well, very confident. And it's not a super sharp argument just because in Baltimore City especially, there's there's a joint management arrangement which has not really worked all that well as we can tell from both the state and city uh, as it relates to both um, the, you know, the school system as well as the police department, which is actually a state agency. And the health department. 
and the health department. So, you know, that's just factually, it's kind of problematic. But the one thing I want to say, Ryan, is just, you know, this isn't an, an us versus them issue. And it, and it cannot be. We have to be in this together uh, in order to address it. Most of us will, you know, all rally around the notion that we want kids to have better outcomes. Uh, but we have to engage in the dialogue and to have it. We're at this inflection point because I think Kerwin's work is, is mature enough. It's at a point where, you know, we have a real good sense of what these policy ideas look like, of how we need to advocate for them. And now we have to have to have the real conversation about dollars. Um, you know, there's this quote from Edward Murrow. Uh, he says that uh, anyone who isn't confused doesn't really understand the situation. And, you know, what he's saying is that those who are furthest away from the problem tend to believe that they have the perfect and only solution. Whereas you have to be closer to the issue to understand its complexities, its nuances, and the necessity to work with others in order to get over the finish line. That's right. Um, what about housing? Should we talk about housing? I have no expertise, and so I don't want to. And I don't want to talk yeah. About it. yeah. Well, we I, it's incredibly important and critical, but I don't want to give any information that's not accurate. It should be a housing advocate that we set has up, a conversation. I think we set up at least one thing in the discussion on housing for maybe today and for the conversation as it relates to education, which is that some of the issues um, with segregated schools that we're dealing with clearly come from a racially biased housing policy in our past. Uh, from 1934 to 1968, I think it was 98% of home loans were going to white families. And that was a significant result of redlining that occurred um, uh, during the Roosevelt administration um, with the idea that we're going to sort of designate which areas are struggling, are poor, and which ones are going to be good areas. Um, and so we, and along those lines, we had black families move into one and white families move into the other. Uh, and as a result, got treated differently by banks, by um, businesses about deciding where to move into. Um, these are the issues. This is sort of one of the original sins that continues to plague us in the conversation about education. Um, and so it took a lot of energy, a lot of negative energy to get to where we are as it relates to segregation uh, and a lot of decades. And it's taking a lot of work to get out of it, which is partly why Cohen is as bold and transformative as it's proposed to be. I love watching the Kerwin Commission in action. I like the coverage. Riveting. It's, you know what, though? But it's, no, it was great. It's, it's important work, and I applaud you both for being so actively involved. I wish we had another hour to talk about Baltimore County. Yeah. Some, of issues, some of the school issues there. Indeed. That's a obviously a, a big topic, and I know the Baltimore Sun has been covering that. I know that your new county executive is working. Right. And, and I cycled off the school board in December of last year. Okay. But I'll say, you know, still being on the Workforce Development Board has given me opportunities to, to follow the conversation to be a part of it a little bit. Right. And can I end with something that you started with? Um, when you talked about the presidential campaigns and the lack of focus on education, although I think Michael Bennett had a pretty um, aggressive plan. Um, they talked about a few other candidates have nibbled around the edges. But when we think about it in Maryland, it's because education is such a massive topic. It touches so many different areas, but it takes time. We can't just jump from one policy to another policy and think we're going to have long-term success, which is why Kerwin is so essential because it's this 10-year fully comprehensive plan that it's not just nibbling around the edges. It's not saying, oh, we're going to implement universal pre-K and now all of our problems are solved. It's actually getting at the root of a lot of these systemic issues that for so long it's been easy to ignore. And so that's why that political will from both leadership in the House, the Senate, from the executive branch is going to be critical because these aren't easy problems to solve. And these aren't easy solutions uh, that can just be explained in two seconds. And so it will take effort. It will take commitment. Messaging. But at the end of the day, this is the right plan at the right time with the right people that all we need to do 
is have people say yes, and in 10 years, we're going to have the world-class system that we all want for our own kids. I agree with that, Joe, and I think messaging, as we mentioned, is vitally important. However, you can't sell education policy in 240 characters. Correct. I know that tweets can be pithy, and I know that Facebook posts are great to rally up people of like mind and to encourage that activism, but it's going to take a lot more than just taking to our social media account Correct. to sell this. This is yes. a, a big conversation, and that's why today this conference is so important to and fundamental to this statewide conversation. And I know that the time work is yeah. coming. Um, gentlemen, I am looking forward to hearing from you later this afternoon. I appreciate you coming on a Minor Detail podcast. Great. and. I hope that we can continue this discussion in a, in yeah. a longer format. And Joe and Nick, thank you for your work on education. Oh, thank thanks. you for working towards making Maryland the best place in the country to get a, a an equitable public education. What? And uh, I'm excited for um, how this is going to turn out. Today. Yeah, I appreciate your time, and I think your point is well taken, that it has to be face-to-face, person-to-person. And so there's a whole statewide coalition that's formed specifically to focus on this called the Coalition for the Blueprint for Maryland's Future. If you go to MarylandBlueprint.org, we're having uh, 20, 30 public forums across the state that you can start RSVPing for. StrongSchoolsMaryland.org, you have a lot of resources there as well. And um, just having us on this podcast, yeah, I think, is you, uh, a fantastic conversation that – uh, let me know when you get that table set with all the decision makers, and uh, we'll be happy to be there to hash out uh, all the questions that are arising. Well, I'll say this as a final word, is that our, our state comptroller, Peter Francho, loves craft beer. <laughs> I've heard. Uh-huh. I think that we might be able to hash out a plan quicker than we all may think. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Yes. Gentlemen, thank, thank you, Ryan. Thank you all so much, and uh, best of luck to you today. Thank, thank you so much.